From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel. Experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 168 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing wonderful. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing great. So I'm feeling very good today. We've often talked about Walt Disney's love of trains. He had his own miniature steam locomotive in his backyard for a time, the Lily Bell, named for his wife, that was part of his Carrollwood Pacific Railroad. He built a barn modeled on the barn on his family's farm in Marceline, Missouri, as a place to house his tools and work on his train and other hobbies. The Carrollwood Society was formed to preserve Walt Disney's railroad legacy. They accomplished this through their members' love of railroading, which is shared with everyone, and to teach children to understand the role that railroads served in building this great nation, and to encourage the continual appreciation of railroading. And this comes from the, the Carrollwood Society's website. Now, Carolwood hosts several members-only social events each year. They also operate Walt Disney's Barn, which was relocated to Griffith Park, Los Angeles, after Walt and Lillian Disney's home was sold, um, for, and they run it for the Walt Disney Family Foundation. Walt's Barn is filled with his personal railroad history, history of Disneyland, and many interesting miniature live steam and other models. It is also known as the birthplace of Imagineering. Now, normally, Walt's Barn is open every third Sunday of the month, and Carrollwood Society members would serve as volunteer hosts. Unfortunately, it's temporarily closed due to the pandemic at this time. But the Carrollwood Society recently launched the first of what is to be a series of virtual members-only events called Carrollwood Conversations. And in this episode, I'm going to share what I learned from the first Carolwood conversation and, and a couple of other Carolwood Society meetings that were recorded. So the first um, Carolwood Society or Carolwood conversation was a conversation with Disney legend Tony Baxter. And the, you would think it would be on, on Walt Disney Railroad, but the, actually at one of their meetings a couple years ago, he talked, or a year or so ago, I think, he talked about. Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. This one is uh, about um, uh, oh, let's see. Oh, I'm on the wrong page in my little notebook here. This one was Disney and um, the Disneyland Submarine Voyage with Disney legend Tony Baxter. And I'm reading this from my trusty little notebook here, so you can hear a lot of pages turning. Um, the moderator was Society founder Michael Brogy, son of Disney legend Roger Brogy, and also hosted by Jim Van Osterbridge, who's a friend of the Diz, actually. Now, 
Now, uh, Tony Baxter started Disneyland in 1965 scooping ice cream at Main Street when he was 18. He became an attraction host on the submarine voyage. And Tony earned a degree in theater design. Then he joined Imagineering, and his very first job was painting flats for the Hall of Presidents mock-up. And he worked at Epcot. And then he worked in New Fantasyland, Star Tours, of course, Indiana Jones at Disneyland, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, and probably his crowning achievement, perhaps, is Disneyland Paris, although many will think it's Indiana Jones. And that's um, that's his favorite attraction that he worked on. I heard him say in another talk. They're two very good crowning achievements, at the very least. They, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Now, for Walt's Barnes 20th anniversary um, the reconstruction in 2019, he uh, Tony Baxter received the Heart and Heritage Award. He's one of four people who have received it. So, uh, what were the original motivations to do a submarine voyage? Since um, the mo- you know much of Disneyland is based on IPs, you know intellectual properties or films and stuff. And Michael Brogy's father brought him to see the, so Roger brought him to see the filming of the squid scene of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And it was animated by puppeteers. And there was, uh, he, he said, then there was a walkthrough set up at Disneyland's Tomorrowland. So there's a long history of submarines at Disneyland. So, Tony went to Disneyland on the opening day of the submarines, Matterhorns, and Monorail in, the, in the 1959, and that was the first day of e-tickets at Disneyland. And Tony has a large collection of Nautilus models. He showed them, and it's astonishing how many models of the Nautilus there are. And every time a new one comes out, he adds it to his collection. He also has, and he showed these during the talk, and he was in his, um, I don't know, his, his vault or his cave, whatever it was, but I think it was in his home, um, the original storyboards of the squid scene. And at first, Walt didn't like the scene as it was filmed, so he decided to film it at night with rain coming down in the same angle as the wires that were manipulating the squid so that the water would hide the wires. So Walt wanted a 20,000 leagues attraction, um, you know, and he wanted, and we wanted the original attraction with some of the scenes cut from the film, um, sort of like the angler fish scene that's in the Disneyland submarine attraction. And that was that was from a scene cut from the film. And he also expanded other scenes like the graveyard scene, the gra- the ship graveyard scene. Walt asked the Navy who might help him with funding the attraction, and they suggested General Dynamics. But now Walt wanted the submarines to look like the Nautilus in the film, but General Dynamics, who was willing to fund the attraction said they wanted the subs to look like their subs, and they wanted it to go under the North Pole rather than to the lost continent of Atlantis, because the Nautilus, the real Nautilus for the Navy, had just done that, gone under the North Pole. So 
Tony believes the Disney parks are so special because of the diversity of attractions. You can ride a steam train, fly an elephant, and go on a submarine. So since two-thirds of our planet is water, he said it's a great experience to have an attraction based on oceans that takes people to them. So after General Dynamics, you know, left their sponsorship of the attraction, the submarines didn't have to be warships. So they uh, upgraded them to research vessels, and that's when they painted them yellow. Due to the high maintenance, and it's a double attraction because the scenes are on the both sides of the submarine and then the chlor there's the chlorine does damage and you know the, it requires divers to repair it which we saw on that series a day in disney on disney plus um leadership wanted to shut down expensive attractions at the time and tony wasn't going to tony wouldn't say who the management was but we all know us disneylanders know it was the paul pressler era so they wanted to shut down expensive attractions. So both submarine attractions at Disneyland and Walt Disney World were closed. When it was dis, 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 decommissioned, the Navy was there. And, you know, the park was selling submarine sandwiches and they were selling, you know, merchandise. And Tony was asked during the ceremony, isn't this a great day? And he said it was one of the worst days of his life, but that he would bring it back someday. And everybody just sort of nodded their heads and smirked. So when it was going to be brought back, they inspected the Florida subs. But the problem was they were fiberglass and they were splitting and leaking and it wasn't economically feasible. But the Navy inspected inspectors said the Disneyland submarines could last another hundred years because they were built so well. And apparently Disneyland management was slightly disappointed to hear that because they were hoping they could shut it down permanently the way <laughs> the Walt Disney World subs, subs were going to be shut down. Uh, yeah, I, I guess that makes sense. I can't believe that, though. hundred years. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. fascinating. That is, yeah. So Tony looked for another IP to bring back the subs, but Atlantis and Treasure Planet didn't do well at the box office. And, you know, he he said, you know, if it doesn't do well at the box office, you can't ask for millions of dollars to create an attraction based on a film that didn't do well. You can't, you know, basically throw good money after bad. So, so then Pixar's Finding Nemo did well. And Tony pitched the idea of a Nemo theme, and it got approved. The thing is, he didn't have any idea what it would be. But um, some were not happy because at Disneyland, some people were not happy because basically they were saving $10,000 a day or so by not running the submarines. But Bob Iger wondered why it costs so much to run a submarine. So Tony took him into the show building with all the welders and, you know, that huge show building that's under Utopia, and they saw how big the show building was and the welders and all the repairs and all that. And um, then Bob Iger understood why it was costing so much to bring the attraction back and to run it. Now, there was a, the other thing that they were able to do was convert the submarines from diesel 
to uh, those stinky, loud diesel engines to uh, electric motors. And he said that the the subs run just a few inches above the guide, and it's an it's an inductive power transfer, and so they they pass power to um, the electric engines in the back, and that way they could get rid of the diesel um, the diesel works, and so it's sort of like. Uh, they run a like a wire charger for um, phones. You know, it works just the same way. So um, yeah, and so and so the engine noise that you hear on the attraction is actually a recording. So so now the show has um, digital animation underwater. So guests would believe they were really seeing and playing with Nemo, you know, Dory and Crush. And so this was their first collaboration with Pixar, and it's how they got John Lasseter on board with Disney. And he said the subs had been very poorly stored in the show building when they were, you know, on hiatus, I guess. And they pulled out a boat. He said there were rats living in them and mice, and there were there was this huge layer of leaves at the bottom. They cleaned it up, and they attached a box with animation um, from Talking with Crush, you know, um, that attraction at Walt Disney World. And um, and they, they attached it to a porthole. And then they did, they created some custom animation as well. And they put management in the sub and showed them what it would look like. And when it was over, apparently they said, damn, we didn't want to like it, but we do. And at the end, the custom animation was at the end, Crush said, all right, dudes, it's time to write the check. <laughs> That's hilarious. So, However, yeah. now I can never go in those subs without the idea in my brain that they were not cleaned thoroughly. And it's just full of mouse and rat droppings from the nuts that they made in there. But I'll, I'll get over that eventually. I, I have a feeling they, they, they've cleaned them out since then. <laughs> but did they clean them well enough? That's the question. <laughs> well, and apparently management all laughed at that line. So it got approved. Now there was new management at Disneyland, and they went to Pixar to work and to work with them. And so he said that there, the way it works is there's a box that has two to three feet of sort of dry space with no water. And then there's two or three scrims with the animation. And the boxes are at a level so you can't see their tops. So, And there are four soundtrack variations as the sub goes by. So they had to animate four variations of the fish saying close to the same thing. And then Steve Jobs came down to see it with his family, and Tony Baxter was in awe. And normally there are lots of pleasantries, and you know when you get, you know, a VIP visiting. But Steve asked, "What happened to the EOC? It wasn't as good as the rest of it." And later Tony realized he was right because they had run out of money for that scene, and so it wasn't as elaborately staged as the other scenes. You know, didn't have the dry box and didn't have all those all the scrims and everything else. And Tony realized at that moment that people who change the world 
don't have time for pleasantries because they're always thinking. And Steve picked up on what wasn't as good and told them rather than talking about what was good. And he said, Walt Disney could be the same way at times. So um, then there then there was a sort of a Q&A from the audience. And why was um, 20,000 leagues under the sea at Walt Disney World closed? And Tony sort of revisited what he had said previously. Disneyland subs were solid steel and constructed as miniatures of real general dynamic submarines, which is why they could last 100 years. The 20,000 leagues subs were fiberglass and all of the panels separated in the heat and over the years they were just filling them with caulk and they they had to turn off the waterfall because they were leaking so badly on guests and the acidic florida water and the chlorine caused a lot of damage to the submarines and the hydraulic popping of the water table uh, in Florida also caused damage to the lagoon. And in California, there basically is no water table beneath Disneyland. So they didn't have the same issues with the lagoon. So the retired subs were scrapped and they were treated very badly. Um, the last one, he said, is in the Snorkel Lagoon at Castaway Key. And Tony snorkeled down to it because he had painted them. That was one of his first jobs. And he pulled off one piece of peeling paint. And he got in trouble by the lifeguard for <laughs> snorkeling all the way down there, he said. Yeah, the last time, uh, last time I was at Castaway Key and I, I snorkeled to it, it, did, it, it was in a little bit of uh, rush shape. But that was after the last hurricane that came through. It, I mean, it... I'm sure it will, it's not close to falling apart, but I remember the first time I saw it and maybe, maybe it's just that, that I, I've seen it so many times now, but like the first time I saw it, it was like that instant trigger flashback to when it was actually in the parks. And now I'm like, Ooh, it's uh, it's, if you didn't know this was the Nautilus, you wouldn't, you wouldn't really know it anymore. Yeah. He said the seats are still in it. And all that, because he could see the upholstery coming apart and all that. So. And I I would love to get close enough one day to look, but the not the last time I was at Castaway, but maybe the time before that or the time before that, that's where I was swimming around the Nautilus and uh, I saw two sharks inside. One that was swimming around oh, wow. the top and then one inside. And at that point, I'm like, okay, I will keep my distance. I don't need any of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So somebody asked, how, during the volcano scene, how did the Disneyland submarines bounce up and down? And he said, um, on the 10-foot 10, 10 um, track of water, or track that it runs on... There's a hundred pounds per square inch. There's air in there and it, um, they release it and it jumps and makes the boat bounce up and down during the volcano scene. So, so when they decide, and you know, we've, we've, you've, you've but went to the walkthrough, the 20,000 leagues, you know, the Nautilus walkthrough to Disneyland Paris. Yes. Yep. 
record. Yeah, which is amazing. Well, there was a person, Tom Sherman, who's a huge fan of the film. And so he worked, when they decided to build the Nautilus Walk to Disneyland Paris, Tom Sherman set it up as close as possible to reality. And it was built in, um, it was built in Tahonga, California, and then shipped over. And at the dedication, Michael Eisner made Tom Sherman the captain, and he gave him a cigar, and he was invited to spend the night in Captain Nemo's cabin, but it was too precious to Tom to do that. So he declined the invitation. So, and, and then, um, and then finally, in talking about the parks in general and their philosophies, uh, uh, Tony Baxter said, Disneyland is magic made real. At Epcot, it's reality made magic. And that's why he felt that Nemo should, when the Nemo attraction was added to Living with the Seas, he said that it, it should tell something about the ocean in there because that park is different than Disneyland. And so he says it's not as effect as effective as going into a submarine. And he said, then Disneyland um, Hollywood Studios is, where do you make the magic? So there's different philosophies for those three parks. He didn't mention Animal Kingdom. Maybe because maybe he didn't work on that park. But he said, if these philosophies can be kept neat and clean. There's a reason to visit all these parks. I'm going to share one more, and that is the Carolwood Unmeeting, where they share Walt Disney's railroad, sto- railroad story. And this was the Carolwood Unmeeting back in um, September 28, 2013. And it's Walt Disney's Railroad Story by Michael Brogy. And they just um, recorded some highlights. And this was uh, the, in celebration of the 20th anniversary of the Carolwood Society. And they like to champion the preservation of Walt's heritage. And Michael said the brand is so huge that people may not know that Walt Disney was a real person. And the Carolwood Society celebrates Walt's legacy. He said, he said that Walt was the most honored American in history, with over 1,100 citations, including 34 Academy Awards. And if you go to the Walt Disney Family Museum in the lobby, which is free when it's open, it's free to everyone. You don't need a ticket. You can see many of these citations there. Um, he said Walt didn't have a lot of formal education. He dropped out of school in 10th grade. His first company, Laughograms, went broke. He lost his first star, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, because he didn't read the fine print of the contract. Yet, he overcame all of that and was, of course, a success. When Walt made Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, it was standard to go to the cinema and see a newsreel, a five to seven minute cartoon, and then the feature live action film. So for Walt to have the nerve to create a feature length cartoon was a risk financially and took a lot of nerve. And, both, and you know, and people thought it was ridiculous. You know, it was called Walt's Folly. Um, both Lillian and Walt thought Walt's dream of Disneyland you know, was a bad idea, that it was foolish. And yet we all know um, the success that that became. So Michael Brogy remembered June 18th, 1955. This was the day before his 13th birthday. 
Of course, we all know it was the day before the famous, you know, opening of Disneyland. And his father, Roger Brogy, who was the chief Imagineer for the park, woke him up and said, Michael, we're going to the park. And at the time, they lived in a northwestern area of the San Fernando Valley. And they drove to Disneyland to the corrugated building where the trains were held. And when they arrived, they heard the ringing of a big brass bell. And out into the sunlight pulls a steam locomotive. And it, I think it was the E.P. Ripley, because there's a photo of this. And it was still smelling fresh and new with all the steam coming out. And inside the cab was Walt dressed as a train engineer with his striped cap and bandana. And there was a group of people there because they were all there to work, of course, on the trains in the park um, the day before the opening. And Walt stops the engine and announces to the group that was there, I want to tell you something. When I am in this park, I am not the head of the Walt Disney Company. I am the chief railroad engineer. And... Everyone later found out that Walt's company, Retlaw, because Walt liked to, you know, he liked backward names. Um, he owned the Disneyland Railroad and all the equipment. He also owned the name Walt Disney, and that was to protect his family's interest. So Walt kept his railroad outfit in his apartment on Main Street over the, uh, you know, the firehouse. And when he was in the park, he would change into it, and then he would cross town square, go to the Main Street Railroad Station, and when the next train pulled in, he'd point to the engineer and tell him, you're on break, go sit down. And then Walt would climb aboard the engine, get in the cab, and he would run the engine around the park. And guests had no idea that the name of the man you know, on the company and on the park's name was taking them you know, on a grand circle tour of the park. So, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe I rode with Walt Disney when I was a boy, sometime between, you know, 1957 when I first visited the park to 1966. So Just imagine. I mean, that's, I know. that's one of those that stories that, <laughs> that I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who had the opportunity, like in the grand scheme of things, if... You happen to be there, like you know, the train's pretty full. There's a lot of people who could have said it, but uh, it's but it, it's even cooler for the people who went through it and didn't even realize it in that moment. But maybe one day it just pops in their head, like actually, yeah, there was. I think that was him running the train. Like that'd be mm-hmm. wild. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be? Wouldn't that be? That maybe that somebody has a photo standing in front of the locomotive yeah. in there in a shoebox and there's Walt hanging out the window, just grinning at them. Wouldn't that be hilarious? So cool. Yeah. Well, the reason Michael Brogy too remembers this day, June 18th, 1955, after Walt made the announcement that he's the chief railroad engineer when he's at the park, and that was just so he could drive the train anytime he wanted. He said that. Walt then said, there's another position. I need a fireman. And he looked at, little 12, almost 13-year-old Michael Brogy and said, Michael, would you like to be fireman? Well, apparently Walt didn't have to ask twice. And so Michael reached out his arm and Walt helped Michael up into the cab. And for the next four hours, they played trains. And they ran the train around Disneyland and stopping for publicity photos along the way. And and Michael had up a, a photo of him in the cab with Walt um, on this day. And that's why I know it's the E.P. Ripley. So... 
Um, and during these four hours, Michael asked Walt, because I, I was thinking, what would, what is a 12 year old would I have asked Walt Disney? Cause I think I would have been speechless, you know, there, but Michael had the temerity, the, the frame of mind to ask Walt, how did you do all this? You know, how did you create Disneyland? And Walt said, Michael, there are four words and they all begin with C. And I want you to apply them to all aspects of your life. And those four words were curiosity, confidence, courage, and constancy. He said, you want to allow your passion to be your guidance in life. Go towards the things that give you pleasure and enjoyment. Your curiosity will let you know what makes you happy. And when you go to work, you'll, you'll be in the right place. Confidence is vital because you, once you're convinced you're right, believe it all over because there are people who will talk you out of your dreams and aspirations. But if you're confident and believe it all over, no one will be able to talk you out of your dreams and aspirations and goals. Courage is important because then you can trust in your unique abilities. And that is what your true, those are your true possessions. You can lose your fortunes and your material possessions, but you can't lose your abilities because they are your true possessions. Then Walt used a word Michael had never heard before, constancy. And Walt explained constancy shows that you are steadfast and you can be trusted. And it's the first sign of leadership. Others will follow those who are steadfast. And I think those uh, four C's, all of us can apply those to all areas of our life. I I completely agree with you on that one. Yeah, yeah. So in 1990, Michael's father received the Legends Award, and his father has a window above the uh, Disneyland Magic Shop, and it's Roger Brogy, and it's Can Do, Can Do It, and it, it all refers back to the machine shop. And six members of the Brogy family have become Imagineers, and Michael's mother was the first female animator at the Walt Disney Studio. Isn't that amazing? Oh, yeah, that's really amazing. Yeah. Good uh, but I was just thinking, I was just, really, I was just thinking as a 12-year-old to have Walt give me that advice and taking it to heart. You know, just just imagine how that would carry you through life. Remember back, we've, we've talked about this in previous episodes, how the Disney Studio helped Lionel trains out of bankruptcy. Um, you know, when they, when they licensed the Mickey and Minnie handcart in, during the depression in the 1930s. And the Lionel company sold 150,000 sets at $1 each. And the company president was so grateful. He said, Walt, if you ever need model trains, let me know. Well, a couple of weeks later, Walt got a call from the mailroom telling him, we had a couple of boxes here for you. And it was everything Walt needed for a model train layout. And Walt put it together himself. And this layout was 
on display a few years ago at the Walt Disney Family Museum for one of their um, exhibitions. And this got Walt interested in model trains. And so that Walt knew someone who had a model railroad in his backyard, and Michael Brogy showed a photo of all of them riding this model train. And it's Walt and Lillian and Ward Kimball and the Brogies. I mean, it's every, it's all these people from the studio. And, uh, and then, and it was then that Walt decided he wanted one of his own. So Walt and Lillian were closing escrow on five acres of land in June, on June 1st, 1949 in Holmby Hills on Carrollwood Drive. And this was for the, uh, they, they paid $25,000 for five acres in, in Holmby Hills. Um, and as they're touring the property, of course, Walt is visualizing what this could look like as a yard for his railroad, whilst Lillian is visualizing the nice home they could have on the property for themselves and their two girls. So, after they closed escrow, Walt went to the studio machine shop to tell Roger Brogy that he wanted a railroad, and he wanted Roger to build it. Well, of course, everybody at the studio knows that the answer to everything that Walt wanted was yes. And then you figured out how to do it. And actually, that's sort of what I learned <laughs> in my time with Walt. And I've always done that, too, in my life. <laughs> I say yes, and then I figure out how to do it. And actually, it's taken me pretty far. Yeah. So, anyway. Um, anyway, so Walt needed a workshop. So he goes to the architect, John um, Cowles Jr., and says, Back when I was a kid, we had a farm that had a barn. That barn was a model for the film, so dear to my heart. So I want you to see that film and look at that barn. And I want that barn built in my backyard. And you're going to design it for me, except that I want windows all around it. Because, you know, normally barns don't have windows. But Walt wanted windows in it since he was using it as his workshop. So Walt needed a crew. So Michael and his older brother, Roger Jr., and his dad, Roger, were the crew. So when it was all built, Walt and his dad would do the steam up on an elevated piece of track. And then Michael and his older brother, Roger, would go to the tunnel where the rolling stock was kept. And they'd do a gravity run into Yensid Valley, because once again, there's Walt using the backward you know, words. And they would go and hook up the freight cars. And Walt would go into his barn and get his yellow caboose that was fully detailed inside. And he'd set it on the track. And this caboose is on display to Walt Disney Family Museum, and they had it on display for a while where it was tilted and it was opened. The roof was open so you could see all the detail inside. And the caboose had blankets, tools, and a pot belly stove that real, really worked, all in one-eighth scale. And Walt had built the whole thing himself. Um, the frames, the trucks, and the wheels were built in a machine shop, but everything else was built by Walt because he had learned carpentry from his father. So Walt built that little yellow caboose. So it's very special to see that. Where now, one day, <laughs> I, that's what I'm wondering, too. But when he went, what everybody says, when he went home from the studio, he did not take work home with him. Although sometimes on the weekend, he would write script, he would read scripts, and he'd have his, um, 
this red uh, pen, uh, pencil. It was a special, like a grease pencil. And, and he'd make notes on the scripts. But otherwise, he was with his, the family or he was out in the barn yeah. working on stuff. So, anyway. So, one day uh, when Michael's at Walt's house... Uh, I guess part of the crew there, about a hundred people lined up to get a ride on the train. And Walt said, I don't know any of these people. <laughs> and at the time, there were no gates or fences on the property. So anyone could line up and get a ride on Walt Disney's train. Can you, and Walt gave them rides. Can you imagine? I, so, I, if you had a time machine, going back in time, I, that's like one of the things I think those massive Disney fans would do. In a heartbeat. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, uh, later, uh, Michael said a gate and fence were added, but not when Walt's miniature railroad was running. So, trains are so important to Walt that when the Saturday Evening Post ran the first of a series of six articles that were under the name of Diane Disney uh, Miller in November of 1956, the cover had a painting of Walt Disney on his model train with Disney characters as passengers. And that was Walt's idea. So, um, so, so interesting that that's what Walt would choose. And, and that's what I learned from, uh, these, these virtual meetings from Carolwood Society. So I hope that you enjoyed them. And it's super interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, I I learned a lot, especially from that second one, you know, the wisdom of Walt there at the Four Seas. So I hope everybody uh, got, got something out of that. I think we all did. Because so, I, I, I know I did, yeah. So now let's chug back in time to this week in Disney history. Hey, Craig, here we are for the week of October 11th. So we're going to go from trains to uh, spacecraft. So Apollo 7, the first manned mission in the Apollo program, is launched from Cape Canaveral, Florida on October 11th, 1968 for an 11-day Earth orbital mission. The crew consists of Commander Wally Schirra, Commander Module Pilot Don Isley, and Lunar Module Pilot Walter Cunningham. What Disney item did Commander Wally Schirra bring with him? I think I just read this recently when I was going through a, a space, uh, a space uh, kick there as we were talking about our our Disney uh, Man in Space episodes and stuff. I, I I think it was a Mickey Mouse watch. Absolutely, that's right. Commander Wally Schwab wore a Mickey Mouse watch. That's very exciting, I think. Yeah, I, that's what I would take up into space if I wanted to bring <laughs> up a Disney item. It would be my, uh, be my Mickey Mouse pocket watch. I don't have a regular Mickey Mouse watch, but uh, if I had an Apple watch on, it would have the Mickey Mouse back to it. So. That's what I have. <laughs> I have many watches, <laughs> Mickey Mouse watches. Um, okay, October 12th. 
Disney's 75th anniversary online special events presented an online chat with the original Alice in Walt Disney's Alice comedies on October 12th, 1998. What is the actress's name? We bring her up so often. It should pop right out of my head a lot quicker. Um, Virginia, mm-hmm. Virginia Davies. Very close. Virginia Davis. Davis. Very good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely an important name in Disney history. I, I think First, you asked me a question about her like three months ago, and I think I made the exact same mistake. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I don't remember. So. Uh, okay, October 13th. Walt Disney returned to his boyhood home of Marceline, Missouri on October 13th, 1960 to help dedicate Walt Disney Elementary, a new public school. He donated playground equipment to the new school along with an item from the 1960 Winter Olympics. What item did Walt donate? Oh, gosh. I remember when we talked about this, but I'm, I'm blanking on it. We saw one when you and I uh, were at the Walt Disney Studio in front of the commissary, because there's one there as well. Does that help? It doesn't. Now I feel crazy. Walt Disney donated a flagpole that had flown flags over the 1960 Winter Olympic ceremonies in Squaw Valley, California. Walt arrived for the dedication ceremony by train, the first time that the Santa Fe Super Chief had ever stopped in Marceline. Well, since they were talking about Walt and trains in the Carolwood Society, that was a nice little tidbit of information to drop in there. All I needed was for you to tell me, and it came back in my head instantly. Yeah, it's not funny how that works. I know. Okay, October 14th. What Disney character made its grand entrance at Epcot on October 14th, 2010? Um, that was, uh, that was uh, Duffy. Yeah, I think I ask you this every year. I think so, <laughs> yeah. too. But I, I always answer the same. It was right, right the, uh-huh. the last week that I was working at Epcot before they gave me the, uh, they gave me the boot. Uh, yeah, it's Daphne, Duffy the Disney Bear made his grand entrance with Mickey Mouse at Epcot. First hand sewn by Minnie Mouse as a gift to Mickey, Duffy, dressed like a sailor, was designed to be Mickey's companion during his travels. This character has been popular with guests at the Disney theme parks in Asia. Boy, is he ever. I, I, I get it. <laughs> I get Duffy was always cute, but even for me, like, I just... We, uh, Kylie and I collect some stuffed animals and stuff, you know, hoping that one day we'll be able to give them to our kids and force them to like the things that we like. But I just, <laughs> it, Duffy was that one that was always like, eh, you know, I, I don't need it now is, is a male. And, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't know. It just never, it never clicked with me. Maybe eventually <laughs> when I go to Asia, but yeah, I, I, I don't get it. I appreciate I have Duffy. people who like it, though. Yeah, I have Duffy and all his friends. The, the turtle that was um, only available at Alani, I heard, is now available to Polynesian. Yeah, Olumel is all over the Polynesian in the yeah. the gift shop on the main floor yeah. right below. Uh, Kona Cafe. Yeah, because somebody contacted me saying, who knew I 
had the set. So do you have the turtle? I said, yeah, because a listener to the show brought one back um, for me as a gift when she was in um, Lonnie. So yeah. it, it's cute. Okay. I'll, I'll say that when I was there the two weeks ago, looking at some of the merchandise there, it's like, oh, Olumel is is actually cute, but still, I'm not. I, it's one of those things. I feel like you either have to go all in or or you don't go in at all. So I'm yeah. not going in at all. <laughs> Alrighty, yeah, my granddaughter loved them, so that's why we have them. Uh, okay, October fifteenth to celebrate the fifteenth anniversary of Walt Disney World's Fantasmic on October fifteenth, twenty thirteen, Disney's Hollywood Studios becomes the first Walt Disney World Resort entertainment offering to debut new technology during this evening's performance. What was the technology? That was um, I, I was there for this. I I've watched my video of it actually kind of regularly, and that was the night that they added glow with the show. That's right, glow with the show ear technology, the new ear hat technology, and interactive light up versions of the famous Mickey ear hats was featured as a regular part of the nightly show. This technology allowed the ear hats to dance and play along with each musical and illuminated sequence. It only works when everybody's wearing them. Yes, and I, I mean, I knew that because, of course, it, it Glow with the Show debuted out in, in Disneyland with World of Color, and mm-hmm. I learned that one of the very first times that I was there to, to watch that show because... I want to. I can't remember who brought a pair. Maybe Tom, and so it, he was one of the only people with them. So it's like, okay, well, he's enjoying. You know, I can enjoy it because I can see the ears in the show. But you know, if he can't enjoy it, and then yeah. I finally saw it in 2013 um, uh, with with uh, I, I saw it with with Fantasmic and then the World of Color Winter Dreams when I got to watch giant groups wearing the ears and then it just like, it it clicked it was like, okay, this is really cool when everyone agrees that they're all gonna buy them and they're all gonna have them or you know, if you're just, in my case, if you're lucky enough to be at events where they give them to people for free and like with with Fantasmic, that was uh, they they gave them to all the cast members in the middle section. So then, as uh, as the people sitting on the sides got to watch watch the show. So that with my video of it, I I got an angle where you can still see the entire stage and you can see all the water. But then I made sure it was just that was kind of in the left hand corner. So that way in the right, you can see just the sea of glow with the show and and really show how neat it was. So uh, it very, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then they got it. Didn't they get it? to? It worked with the castle fireworks and projections and then i think it was supposed to work with paint the night yeah it was it was with they did add it they added it through like everything except illuminations they didn't add it to that but they added it to the the firework or um pre-show for the fireworks and then it was it was a part of wishes for for a very I, I don't know how long that lasted. I mean, it was basically the technology. Just people stopped. They stopped making it because people stopped buying it. But with Paint the Night, that's when they also had the uh, the wand 
where you could change yeah. people's ears as as they were going by and such. And I uh, I, I still have my wand somewhere. I need to dig that out. <laughs> I never bought the wand. I only saw it work when I was in Tokyo. Yeah. I got it for yeah. I I got it for free at the the Disneyland 60th media event they gave it to me and I'm like I don't know what the heck to do with this and brought it back and my dog chewed on it and I was like, yeah, well, now I can't even give it away as a gift, so I'll just put it in the closet, <laughs> dig it out later. Yeah. All righty. Well, so much for glow at the show. <laughs> okay. October 16th. Those those hats were heavy too. They were awkward to wear. October 16th, Walt and Roy Disney signed a contract with M.J. Winkler, a New York cartoon distributor, to produce a series of animated short subjects entitled Alice Comedies on October 16th, 1923, officially creating their first studio. What is the name of the studio? First studio is um, Disney Brothers Cartoons. Yeah, Disney, Disney Brothers Studio, yeah. At this time, the Disney Brothers Cartoon Studio is located on Kingswell Avenue in Los Angeles, California. It is a structure in the back of a realty office that the brothers are renting, although in February 1924, they will move into the building next door, taking over the whole first floor. And I think it's a copy shop now. Mm-hmm. And they have a little sign in the window that they made commemorating it, which is nice. Yeah. Okay. October 17th, Disney announces a new program for 2013 at a morning event in New York City's Times Square, along with a 20-foot-tall, 45,000-pound castle made of ice on October 17th, 2012. What is the name of this new program? Oh, um, this was um, uh, Limited Time Magic. That's right. And it's revealed... That guests will encounter surprise weekly themes at Disney parks in Florida and California in the next year. Each week at the Disney theme parks, it will be highlighted by a different surprise or guest enhancement for a one-week-only engagement. I liked. I liked Very limited good. time magic. That was. It was uh, you know that was the first big kind of event that was going on at Walt Disney World when I started with the Diz, and I, I remember going in and getting so excited about changing up characters that were in the parks and some of the just the little random stuff they came up with that was that was one of their their better promotions they had mm-hmm. i think i i think i got a lot of different pins and um and stickers i never got any of the really cool stuff <laughs> so, oh well but it was fun so i did enjoy it uh, you know, gardening's my hobby, and I, uh, I'm i looking forward to starting to grow seeds from scratch. And when Carol and I went to Alani, we, we, we fell in love with the tropical plants, well, I especially. And we don't quite have the environment here for it. So I'm growing some, but I have to overwinter them because we get frost. And I don't have a really good way of doing it. So I can now bring, I'll be able to bring them into the greenhouse, but then I'll be able to grow other things as well. Like I, the plumbago in the front yard does just fine. And it's gorgeous right now, but I have to bring in like the bird of paradise and the hibiscus. And I heard, um, 
John on our Walt Disney World show several weeks ago talked about how during the pandemic, he started to grow plumeria. And I've always wanted to grow that. And so I ordered plumeria, I think from the same place he did. And right now it's thriving. I ordered two plants, not those sticks you get at Epcot. Those did not work for me. Yeah. And uh, these are rooted plants. And uh, they're doing really well right now. So I'm hoping I'll be able to bring them into the greenhouse and uh, and that they'll thrive in there during the cold months. Very nice. I like yeah, looking so- at flowers. I don't do anything with them, but I like looking at my neighbors landscaping and mm-hmm. say, wow, it's it's really pretty what you're doing with it. I have no passion to get out there and do that myself, but I appreciate you for doing it. I I have a passion. I don't know. I, maybe, you know, the, that's one of the things they say about the British, they, the English, they, um, they're really into gardening. And my family was, it was one of the things that we all did together as a family. Cause my brother had, um, some physical limitations because he was born with an extremely bad heart. So there wasn't a, he couldn't like play sports and stuff with me except catch. And we couldn't run around. We couldn't ride bikes together and all that, but we could garden together and listen to music together and stuff like that. So that sort of, that really became, I think, why I'm so passionate about it, because I feel close to them. And then Carol got into gardening with me. So when I feel I'm in the garden, I just feel I'm closer to my family, you know. um, And that's really nice. I I think with me, it uh, it was that my dad forced me to help him every year when we would do our landscaping and pulling the weeds, remulching, planting new flowers and I think I just despised that because that was a that was a Saturday I knew I had to spend in all in the bushes and and such instead of hanging out with friends or watching movies, playing video games, wh- whatever it was that I was doing. I I probably resented it for that. And so now I uh I'm glad that part of my HOA fees are my my landscaping, but then again, I'm still out there once every other week trimming the hedges because they don't do it often enough in the way that I like it. So so, some of the stuff rubbed off on me. Others, yeah. not as much. <laughs> I have a funny story, though, and I'm sure this is completely illegal given the um, time of mourning my father and I did this. But in Golden Gate Park, if anybody has seen photos of Ocean Beach, you'll see that there are two large windmills. And behind one of the windmills, uh, it was the reclamation plant for the city at the time. I don't know if it's still there. And what they did was they took the sewage and they processed it and used it as manure in the park. I don't know if they still do that. So it's some, it was dawn. It it was dawn, just when light was breaking. My father and I would bundle up and we'd go out there with shovels and boxes (laughs) and we would, um, it was just there for the taking in big piles behind the one windmill. And we would just shovel up the boxes, fill them up, put them in the van. And that's how we uh, fertilized the flowers in our garden. (laughs) And I always wondered if we were breaking the law. I didn't question it at the time because I, you know, always trusted that we were doing the right thing. But years later, I thought, 
Hmm. I didn't ever saw anybody else out there taking advantage of this free manure. So I wasn't sure if what we did was the right thing, but we had beautiful flowers. I'm going to go ahead and say it was probably <laughs> illegal, but you know what? It's like with anything. Is it illegal if you don't get caught? Yeah, I don't know, but I also thought, how did he find out about this? But my father knew everybody um, because of his job. He knew everybody in the city. <laughs> so probably some gardener told him about it. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, it is. <clears throat> well, we're going to do something a little different to start out the show. And we've recently gotten several interesting email messages from from members of our Connecting with Walt family. And... And then a couple that I got through uh, the Connecting with Walt Facebook page that I have. And I these I wanted to share because they actually added content to uh, topics that we've talked about in the last few weeks. And so I thought it would be fun to share them with all of you because they were questions that actually Craig and I had. And one was actually in response to one of our Q&A episodes as well. And so there's just a handful I'm going to go through. And if, uh, if this is something that you enjoy, uh, you know, we'll make this maybe a, a, you know, a regular thing as we get emails and messages, things like that, that we'll share them with you all. So this first one is from Harlan and he wrote, Dear Michael, he says, I've never written before, but I think it is time. He said, I've been a listener to your Connecting as Well podcast since the beginning. And thank you, Harlan, and really enjoy the content in Disney history. Someone may have already made you aware of this, but if not, I may have some help to an answer on the May 22nd Q&A episode number 148. The listener's question wondered about a connection between the Griffith Park carousel and the Detroit, Michigan area. And I, I do remember this question because Craig, you and I sort of mulled over it. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and he, he writes, I could not remember where I originally heard this, but I believe that the listener may have been confusing the Griffith Park carousel with the current Prince Charming Regal carousel at the Magic Kingdom. That carousel was built for the Belle Isle Park that sits in the Detroit River near the city and was placed there initially before moving to the New Jersey Park, where it was found and, and acquired. I believe it is legitimate as it is mentioned in the attached Disney Parks blog link, which he included in his message. And I've seen this noted in other places, including the Orlando Sentinel. And I've also attached another link because the island has a fascinating history. And he said, maybe we could get the Belle Isle origin on the WDW Info Attraction page. He asked. And... And so he said, I'm from Michigan, so anytime I hear a Disney reference to the state, my ears perk up. There aren't very many. I don't know if he means ears or um, <laughs> people from Michigan, Disney references in Michigan. It's a fabulous place. He said, please tell Craig that there are some good Wolverines out there. And as a Buckeye fan, he will get it. <laughs> oh, I, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm sure they're good people. But they will never be good people in my book. So, oh, okay. <laughs> Michigan's the worst place on earth. So, in case you didn't All know right. that, 
I don't know. I have a, I have a longtime pen pal from when I was a little boy who's from Michigan. So if he supports um, Michigan State, then he's okay. But if he has anything to do with the University of Michigan, then he's he's just the worst. Uh, don't don't, don't trust him. He's from Kalamazoo. I have no idea who they um, who they support out there. Anyway, my com- anyway, any Harlan goes on to say my company's based in Napa, so I fly through Sacramento on occasion. Much prefer Sacramento Airport to San Francisco's. I agree, Harlan. And and then he goes on and and is glad that I'm recovering and, and sent belated condolences at Carol's passing. I can tell you that she was dearly loved. I can tell that she was dearly loved. Thank you so much, Harlan. And he says best wishes. Harlan, thank you so much for sharing that information and answering that question for us. That was terrific. Yeah, it's, I always love when uh, when when listeners go back and help us with that stuff because sometimes, uh, especially with this show, because we record it a little bit late every every night when we do it. Sometimes I just kind of forget when we we bring up questions like that, and I forget to find the answer for it. So it's nice when when it just pops into our laps like that. So it's and it's different with this because it's audio only. Unlike you know, with with a lot of the other shows, it, the people just leave the the comments on YouTube, so that way it's it's right there, easy in front of us. Mm-hmm. But not as much with this show. So I, I appreciate it. On the Disneyland show, we recorded live, so when we had questions, we had a live chat running. Yeah, and so when we had questions, people could, would answer them right away. So that was a nice little feature. So okay, this one is from Mark. This is Michael and Craig. He apologizes in advance that this is a long email. And uh, and he said, but there's important and detailed information in it that I know you'll appreciate based on the level of research you always do. So let's see. I'll, I'll just sort of go through this. Over the past several days, he's listened to two of the series from Connecting with Walt's podcast, three episodes about the Silly Symphonies, and the three episodes about Ward Kimball. As always, full of great, well-researched information. Thank you very much mark he says he always learns something new from the podcast which is challenging because mark is extremely knowledgeable and he can fill in a few gaps of information now then he says his credentials now he said he retired nearly five years ago and he's been a regular volunteer at the walt disney family museum so mark we must have met so when the museum reopens and if you're there when i'm there you have to say hello and Anyway, so he said he's gathered a tremendous amount of information as a volunteer there. So, and he's seen all the old classic uh, Disney films. He's he's watched Walt's Disneyland TV show from its first episode when he was seven years old in 1954. So, okay, Mark, you you have it uh, on me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he worked. Now, Craig, you'll find this interesting. He worked for nearly 40 years in movie visual effects as a creature maker and a model maker. Wow. And about 13 years in Los Angeles and the rest in the Bay Area, which included 26 years with Lucasfilm, 14 years in the ILM model shop, and 12 years as a, an ILM digital modeler. And he, has a, he has a link to his IMBD page. So, when did anyway, I know, really. Doesn't seem like he was that old to do all that. Yeah. Anyway, so... From Silly Symphonies, part one. Okay, this is about when we talked about the multiplane camera. He mentioned that one of the three, we mentioned that one of the three multiplane cameras is Disneyland Paris, but we hadn't seen it there, and we figured it was the Walt Disney Studio parts. And he said we were correct, 
And it's in the Art of Disney Animation Building. And I think that's where we thought it was. And his brothers lived in Paris for nearly 50 years, and he makes frequent visits. How wonderful. And uh, and he included a photo of the multiplane camera when he was there in May of 2018. And he says it's nicely displayed, displayed with some backgrounds and artwork from Bambi on the planes. Mm. And how wonderful. And and then he said we met uh, – so next time I go there, <laughs> which I hope I will someday – We'll um, we'll have to see that. I want to go when they've when the park is like opened and they've finished all their expansion. Yeah, and I know um, when I was there uh, for the Art of Disney Animation Building, they had been using that for for the Fan Days event. That was the entire reason that I was out there for. So I I know they had ex- like fake walls set up and such because they had meet and greets inside that building and they did a they did a, a show inside there as well too with the q a portion and such so uh, that stuff wasn't taken down then the next day when i finally got to go in the park as as a guest as well too so i think that was just i didn't get to see that building in the right way so i'm i, I need to get back and see what i got i missed in my very very short time there yeah, me too. Me too. And I was there for a while, but like I talked about, part of the park was closed. Yeah. Like half of Fantasyland and, and all that. Anyway, and then he, and then he, we mentioned the spectacular multiplane shot from Pinocchio, you know, the one at the church rooftop mm-hmm. with the birds flying on the steeple bells, swooping towards Geppetto's workshop in the morning and heading off to school. And he says he loves this shot, one of the most beautiful and complex multiplane shots ever done. And, um, and th- that's the shot that they use in the video at the Walt Disney Family Museum explaining how the multiplane camera works. And he said that there's one error. I said it was the opening scene of Geppetto's Village in Pinocchio. It's not. It's the opening shot of sequence two of Pinocchio. And, um, and then he goes into the uh, opening shot of Geppetto's workshop. And that's the beautiful, challenging multiplane shot starts on Jiminy Cricket's. Um, you know, introducing the whole story. And um, the shot that we talked about, the opening sequence two, was not done on the multiplane camera. And he said that it, and I still considered this part of the multiplane camera because they set up a temporary horizontal multiplane camera with the glass sheets mounted on frames and on dolly tracks so they could be moved toward or away from the camera. And so it wasn't the traditional one that, you know, is several stories tall. Yeah. It was, it was horizontal. So it was still a multiplane camera. And, and so, um, so he said that, as you commented, it is one of the longest multiplane shots they ever did, and possibly one of the most complex. Complex. It was 67 feet long and approximately 45 seconds of screen time. So it was more than the traditional multiplane camera could handle. So they built this horizontal one, and they used it for several shots in Pinocchio and also in Fantasia. And then he... um and then he goes into detail uh, about um, from J.B. Kaufman's book, Pinocchio, The Making of the Disney Epic, which was excellent. And it was part of the uh, Pinocchio exhibit that the Walt Disney Family Museum had. 
And um, anyway, but then remember, we had the question about Captain Nemo's organ. And there was an episode 158 in uh, the This Week in Disney History. And I t- we talked about how it was being used in the film. Uh, the organ was one of the set pieces in a 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea walkthrough attraction at Disneyland. And then it was, after that was closed, it was repurposed and it's in a Haunted Mansion ballroom scene. And I said, I didn't know anything about the history of that organ and whether they built it from scratch or got it from somewhere. And Craig, you said they probably built it from scratch. Well, he, Mark can tell us the history. <laughs> he, um, he saw it during when it was originally released, but he knows how the visual effects were done. And the Walt Disney Family Museum has some of the concept models of the Nautilus built by Harper Goff. And he did a spotlight talk on it. So that's how he knows about it. Um, the 20,000 League set decorator Emile Curry saw an ad in a San Fernando Valley newspaper for an old theater organ that was for sale and went to see it in the seller's garage. It was not playable, but it looked functional. All the keys and stops still moved, which was all they needed since the music would be dubbed in later. The seller had no idea that Curry was from the Disney Studios or that or that it would be used for a film. So he purchased it for a mere $50. He and his team added additional ornate Victorian decorations and a beautiful fan-shaped gold leaf cast plaster pipes and he said as you know those pipes were replaced for the haunted mansion by straight pipes to allow ghosts to fly out of them so he says and there you have it i hope all this helps fill in some gaps in your vast information that you may have use for it in a future episode of working with walt um all the best and thanks for all the things i have learned from you mark so thank you, Mark. That is great. So now, Mark, where where did the uh, haunted mansion? Uh, where did yeah the haunted mansion organ in Walt Disney World come from? I, I'm just <laughs> sitting here, next. sitting back, saying, you know what? I, with Mark's career and in, uh, in movies and and everything with effects and stuff, he most undoubtedly knows everything there is to know about production. So hopefully, mm-hmm. he doesn't come after my job anytime too soon because. Uh, he he definitely can uh, he he could school me on the research portion. Of it oh no, day. I think Just... Mark Mark has some good stories. Mark, we have to meet up at the museum one day when uh, you're not working. I'd like to meet him too. We, yeah, yeah. So, okay, this one is from John. It says, hi, Michael and Craig. I'm an avid listener to the Connecting with Walt podcast. It is a perfect combo of two of my passions, Disney and history. Thank you, John. He said, I listened to the recent Don Hahn interview and was happy to hear the link to Shakespeare be brought up. I am a high school teacher and use Disney pretty constantly to make connections for the kids. Uh, he said, the original plan for Epcot for livable communities in geography. Moana for my themes in English. I think I want to take your classes, John. Mm-hmm. Um, in grade nine, English one, teach the kids how the traditional five act play structure maps perfectly onto Disney post Renaissance films. They watch and write an essay on how Beauty and the Beast 1991, obviously, exactly follows an Elizabethan era comedy structure and features. It's uncanny. So while the want song and a soliloquy are good analogies, it goes way deeper. I felt that I had to share. Thanks for a wonderful show. So that's interesting. I always love to hear how 
educators, you know, incorporate Disney into their um, teaching. Because I did it when I taught. Even when I taught college, I would. So it's always fascinating um, to hear that. Yeah, it's uh, wildly fascinating. Mm-hmm. All right. This is from Patrick. Um, from Patrick. And he was writing in response to uh, the Dave Bossard interview for his book, 3D Disneyland. Actually, he said he thought the interview was great, but he wanted to let us know that the book, as it came together, owes a big gratitude to us. And he said, Dave may not have shared this with you off air, but if not, I thought you would enjoy hearing it. He said he caught our episode where we interviewed Dave for his book, on Ken Weber Furniture. At the end of the interview, he mentioned he was working on 3D Disneyland. And he, and Ken had been, well, he had been a stereo photographer hobbyist for 10 years and, um, and, and a lifelong fan of Walt Disney history. So Patrick reached out to Dave to see if he needed any help with the book. And they emailed back and forth and he was brought on the project to format Ted Kiersey's incredible vintage photos converting the scan slides into red cyan anaglyphs for print. And he was visiting the park uh, around this time and asked Dave if he needed any specific stereo shots to fill in the gaps in the book. And Dave was gracious enough to suggest a few, so he used a stereo camera to collect those and dozens more from the review. So to my absolute joy, he selected a handful of them for the book. So it was an honor to be invited to participate at all in a dream to have my images appear alongside Ted's in his, this historic collection. And remember, Craig, we talked about the images of Walt? Yeah. Well, it was Patrick that got those images and remastered them for the book so they would be in 3d wow he said each photo took around eight hours to convert pushing pixels around until it felt just right and he said now to be clear i know dave would have put together a great book without any help from me i'm very aware that i'm a guest along for the ride but it would have been a different book without connecting with walt acting as a literal connector between myself and dave for that i owe you a huge thank you Love the show. Thank you so much, Patrick. I'm overwhelmed by that. Uh, me too. <laughs> I, mean, I have no words uh, to even say about that. I just, I am, yeah, I'm, I'm speechless. I, I've got nothing. <laughs> I know. It's, it's just amazing. Well, that book is going to mean so much more to me now. <clears throat> and I ordered two. So when I, I ordered one for my granddaughter, and I'm going to tell her, hey, I had a little part in this book. A very tiny, minuscule part. But, um, Patrick, thank you so much for taking the time to share that with us. And we're honored that we could um, help you be a part of that book. Yeah. I, that's one of the cool things about this is when it, we're just here sharing our passion about Disney, about Walt, about about all the aspects of everything we cover, even even when we're just doing our witty banter and stuff, you know, it's just because it's we have developed into a community that that Disney is our our main passion, and that's what connects everyone that's in it. So it, it just goes beyond even the Disney aspect of it. So when when we hear stories like this, where 
someone in our community, listeners, people who enjoy what we do, when when they're able to find a way to then take their passions and extend it into into the community then that's that's just even more incredible you know every not everyone has a passion to create a podcast or or run a website or make videos anything like that but you know clearly clearly he found a a a way that he could be a part of it all and just is it made such such a big we we made a little impact on him and he's now going to make a, a massive impact on on the community with the help that he put into the book and it's that's just so oh, cool yeah. it's so cool that is cool i'd love to see this camera and yeah, how it works <laughs> that would be very fascinating yeah thank you patrick so speaking of of passion um you know we last week we talked about the layoffs that many cast members are experiencing and we've gotten some letters about that and this first one is from Whitney and Rachel Michael and Craig I'm very certain that neither of you will see this and that's okay I just needed to send you a very important thank you in your last episode of Connecting with Walt number 167 you gave a very heartfelt comment to all the cast members who were let go from Disney this week As a person who is hurting from these cutbacks, I just wanted to reach out and let you know how much your words meant to so many. My sister, who was a manager at Hoop Dee Doo Review at Fort Wilderness, was let go on Wednesday after working there for five years. I love Hoop Dee Doo Review. She did the college program with Disney and was so in love with the company and culture. Her heart is breaking, and when I heard the kind words you shared, I told her she needed to listen. She has since shared the episode with all her friends and co-workers in the same situation. I just wanted to let you know that was exactly what they needed to hear. I live in Arizona, so I can't be there physically to help her through this difficult time. It was so nice that she could hear from others how impactful their work was, and it won't be forgotten, and that we will all get through this. Your thoughts are so eloquent and very much appreciated. I know she was feeling embarrassed and rejected, and your comments helped her and others put things more into perspective, remembering that this is not personal. At this point, it's a survival necessity for the company, and Disney will recover, and she will reapply for her dream job again in the future. Thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. I just can't tell you how much this affected me. Um, you know, Whitney and Rachel, when I read this, I think that I, 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 I you know, on the Walt Disney World show, you know, they, Craig and Jackie and, and Denny and Rhino were very eloquent as well in how this is affecting them. And I think this is affecting everybody who loves Disney and loves the parks and loves the cast members who create the magic. And um, just thank you so much for taking the time to share your feelings and letting us know that we've helped in in a small way yeah, for I, I do know I don't have details on it, but I know the the Diz is thinking of ways to try to make an, a bigger impact in the community, uh, and and I don't I don't know what those details are now. It's when there's secrets, not I don't want to say secrets, but when there is an idea forming in Pete's mind about what he can do 
to help out in any situation, whether it's with Give Kids the World or right now with the cast members. Uh, it it brews in his head until it's ready to come out, and then we all put our our front foot forward with it and try to make it as successful as possible. And I know I know he's stewing up something in there about how the Diz in, in Dreams Unlimited Travel can can try to help out in this situation. So uh, in the meantime, I I really I really hate saying that. You know, besides things I do personally on my own to try to support cast members in this time, that's all I can do and say, say kind words and try to spread the word as much as possible. But in, in an even bigger scale, I know something is coming that I, I can't, I can't wait, wait for when, when we finally find out what, what that is. But I just, anything we can do right now to help out all the cast members out there, it's, I feel like it's it's the least that I can do is if I was still a cast member right now, I, I know that that would mean a lot to me if I was in the position that that they were in. So mm-hmm. I, I it, we we owe it to them for the stuff that they they go through. I know it's, it's it's a job and it's what they choose to do. And if they didn't like it, they didn't have to be there. But I mean, it's it, just because you do a job that isn't always rewarding and, and gratifying the best. That doesn't mean it, it's still, uh, that doesn't mean that, you know, you still can't go out of your way to say thank you extra times and, and such. So I'm, I, I know for me personally, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to keep sharing as many, as many uh, times on these shows and such that I can to, to spread the word about all the resources that are out there and cast member pantry, Etsy stores, all of that. Cause it's, it's going to help people out there and hopefully hopefully they all uh hopefully they all come out of this better than before absolutely and and I, i'm very optimistic I, I like i said last week i truly believe that when a door is closed a window is open and that new opportunities are out there it might take some time to find and some creativity but as a Disney cast member, you're full of creativity and optimism. You'll find that optimism and that there will be new, there will be new, um, endeavors and new dreams and new ways to, ex- to share that magic yeah. once again. It's, I, I shared it on the, the Tuesday show on the Walt Disney World edition show, but I was on the, ear for each other facebook group looking at all of the talented cast members and all of the the side hobbies that they have whether it's arts and crafts or baking and there was one in particular i i don't have it in front of me so i can't i can't give the exact details but essentially it was a server at one of the restaurants who who also was very much into baking and and uh, decorating and she put together a dessert that looked better than most of the stuff that Disney actually puts together. Like, and you, you are a server and you were so skilled. I'm sure you're an amazing server, but you're even better as a decorator. So it's clear some, some bakery or something would be blessed to have you if you didn't just make that your own 
uh, side gig. I, it might not be as, as fruitful as serving right away, but that's the, it's one of the coolest things that has come out of this terrible, tragic time is that, that all these cast members are trying to be out there and showcasing the things that make them special beyond just putting on a costume and going to work. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very motivating to see. Uh, it's yeah. just I'm gonna it's have to remarkable. Check- have to check that out when i'm out there in november ears to the magic it's un- see if i there's anything i can take advantage of when i'm out there yep but um, so. you're not ears to the magic I'll, I'll make sure i put a link in our show notes for it okay it's uh ear for each other ear for each other like, okay like here but with ear it's very ears, clever yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. okay thank you craig very well said this is from mckenzie I hope this finds you well. In this week's show, you spoke from your heart to people who had lost their jobs recently. While I'm not a cast member, I was struck by the sincerity and optimism you shared with those listeners. Thank you for taking time out of your show to speak with regard to those individuals. These are trying times for so many, but our hearts go out to the Disney family. So I thought that, um, you know, folks affected by this uh, who are listening would appreciate that a listener took time out to um, share her thoughts, you know, with all of us. And then she wrote some personal uh, things to me. And thank you very much, Mackenzie. I appreciate the pixie dust from Indiana. Keep sending it. Finally, from Thomas. And uh, Thomas, this was very moving. He uh, made a... um, a gift in the memory of my late wife, Carol, uh, a, a donation to the cast member food pantry in her name. And he wrote, I am so sorry that I did not have the pleasure of meeting Carol in person. I've gotten to know her through the old Disneyland shows. I wanted to do something to help cast members that have lost their jobs. Um, Thomas, I just can't tell you what this means to me and my family, um, that you would remember Carol, even though you, you only met her through the show. And um, I, I, I wrote Thomas directly about this when I saw the message. But thank you so much, just from the bottom of my heart, for this, for helping other people in my wife's name. And I know she is smiling down on you for your, your generous generosity and thoughtfulness. That's wonderful. That's that is just- wonderful and unexpected. Yeah, that's the, the best word for it. Just, just plain wonderful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So those, those, those are just. I know this took up some time, but I just thought those were very special um, messages, and um, and I, I hope you all enjoyed them. And and you know, as we get gather more, we'll share them in the coming weeks. Yeah, it's, uh, with you. We we love. We love all types of feedback, to be quite honest. Uh, not, I'm not trying to say, like, you'll just start sending us, bombarding us with messages sometimes. You know, it's it takes forever to answer. And other times, it's it's nice for, like, a week like this where uh, we, it, I don't want to say that this is a lesser episode. Michael's about to talk about some really cool stuff. But it was nice that we were able to, to just, you know, find a place for this and... And mm-hmm. share what what everyone out there is is saying and how they're feeling because again, it's the Diz is a community more than more than anything. Michael, before 
he was here doing this podcast and before he was on the Disneyland team, he was he was a dizzer. He was he was part of this. So it you never know who will start out on just on the boards or just a casual occasional listener or watcher and then and then become one of the people who is in the spotlight and we it's why when we meet people at the events and such it's you know it we you'll see us treat some people like we've been hanging out over the years because that's almost what happens with all these times when we have meetups we we start meeting the same people over and over and they become friends and sometimes you just click instantly with people it's it's so much it's so much bigger than that and so i know some people probably don't necessarily write us with the hopes that we're maybe one day mention them or something like that uh on on the show or anywhere else but you know it's it's nice it's nice to share it's it makes it is we like getting the messages and we also like sharing it so we'll probably start doing Mm -hmm. that as well too uh in the future with with like the apple mute apple not music apple podcast reviews and such as as we get new positive uh reviews on there we'd love to share them and say thank you to the people who took their time to to leave those uh ratings and reviews for us so uh thank thank you to everyone out there yes absolutely thank you thank you for being a part of the connecting as well family and uh and Hopefully, at the next couple of events coming up, we'll get a chance to meet you. Just a reminder of the Give Kids the World Night of a Million Lights that's starting on November 13th, going through January 3rd. And tickets are already on sale. The Diz, well, actually, um, Moving to Orlando and Dreams Unlimited Travel are decorating two of the villas. This is, this is, Give Kids the World's response to the loss of Osborne Lights. And it benefits Give Kids the World. There's all kinds of stuff going on where you can ride some of the attractions and get ice cream and see Santa Claus and all kinds of things. So um, I know when I'm out there in November, I'm definitely going to this. So we'll hope, hope I'll bump into you. We also have the Diz Family Reunion 2021 from March 25th through the 27th at the 2021 at the Contemporary Resort. This is actually being put on by Give Kids the World, and it's it's a benefit for them. They just um, our name is just on it, but it's they're completely doing it. I will be there um, for the whole thing, and uh, I. I assume tickets are still available, Craig. I know the VIP one sold out a while back. Yeah, VIP sold but... out. Regular tickets still available. Okay, great. We'll have a link in our show notes to that. Looking forward to seeing you all there. Uh, Storytime with Michael, the rebirth, is happening. Thanks to another listener and his idea. We do have uh, a couple of stories that have actually now been called for. Cinderella or the Little Glass Slipper. We have an artist working on that, and we just got an email that another artist uh, is interested in the Brave Little Tailor. So, artists out there, we we are looking for folks to illustrate the Sleeping Beauty in the Wood, Hansel and Gretel, and Snow White and Rose Red. And there's actually a surprise story that isn't in this list that's also being worked on. And... We, uh, anyway, so we want you to, if you're interested in illustrating these books, they are from Andrew Lang's uh, Blue Fairy book that is available from Project Gutenberg. It's the original stories. And then 
as I read them, we'll have your lovely illustrations um, to highlight the stories. And then I'll do a little talk about how these were adapted by Walt Disney and his storymen and women and artists into the lovely animated films that we enjoy today. So send an email to me and Craig, and we'll share our emails at the end of the show if you're interested. Well, if you'd like to learn more about Walt Sparn, the Carolwood Society, and becoming a member, because uh, they do put on a lot of cool events, especially when the pandemic is over, and maybe you'd, maybe you want to volunteer at Walt's Barn when it reopens, um, check out the, check out their website, which is carolwood.com, and we'll have a link in our show notes to it. They also have a lot of good history about Walt and the barn and trains and all that that you uh, might be interested in reading. So check it out, carolwood.com. So Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on the random shows on the Dis Unplugged podcast network, then on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster, and you can email me at craig at wdwinfo.com. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers in Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyUnplugged.com. Look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and Amazon products where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing. That was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.